Hey, so welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I am Gregory Haddock, and I'm joined here with today's contributing producer, Nate Ford. Nate, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for those who are like, what the hell's going on? A lot of stuff has been changing recently. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is the voice of the Wildlands Collective. Uh, we are one in the same uh, step-siblings parent, child, whatever relationship you want to apply to that. Nate is a member of the Wildlands Collective, and we're just doing everything we can to try to bring new voices from that collective, a, an association of creative storytellers, filmmakers, podcasters, artists, into that uh, democratic space of conservation storytelling. So Nate is the, the newest voice here in a line of hopefully many more voices. I'm sure people are getting tired of hearing mine. And no less on episode 200. Are you are you stressed about it? No, it's it's a great episode. It's a cause for celebration. So it is a cause for celebration. <laughs> uh, I wish if I was a better planner, we would have something prepared, wouldn't we? I'm wearing a party hat, so I don't know what you're wearing. <laughs> I'm wearing my birthday <laughs> suit. No, I am fully yeah. clothed. I promise. I promise. <laughs> Nate, I've had a chance to listen to these two interviews that you've done for today's show. Um, they're Excellent. Uh, so, so good. I, I can't wait for people to to take a listen to them. Uh, before we jump into them, what, 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 what was the takeaway you got from it? Um, and also tell our audience a little bit about the subject for today. Sure. So we mainly touched on how big cats are handled in the wild and here in the U.S. So Kimberly Craighead is the co-founder of the Caminando Habitat Connectivity Initiative. So she works by collecting data on jaguars in Panama and also uses camera traps to acquire data to better support her community outreach for their conservation. So she can kind of speak to what it's like roaming in the jungles of Panama and seeing scratches on trees and, and following those tracks and what it's like to be out in the wild with those big cats. And then Amy is the director of conservation for the Oakland Zoo. So she has a very different perspective on working with cats in captivity. But she can also speak to how, you know, when someone has a private cat that they own in Texas or, or Kansas or wherever, and they realize, oh, I can't take care of a grown tiger. I got to get rid of this thing. So a lot of those cats end up in zoos. So she can kind of speak to how some of those problems that she deals with raising them and, and giving them a good home. Absolutely. Uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to visit with uh, Amy first or Kimberly? Let's start with Kimberly. Okay, here we go. So, hello. Hi. So we can jump right in. Our organization focuses on uh, habitat connectivity conservation issues in Panama. Currently, we're conducting a long-term monitoring study using camera traps in the narrow section of Panama. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is expanding our camera trap program. So we're going to areas that show the red zones, which indicate areas of high habitat suitability to see if they're there or if they're not there. How did you initially get into conservation? I was basically just born a wildlife biologist. Um, for me, there was there was really never anything else that got me so interested. Um, but it also just runs in my blood. I'm I'm actually a relative of Frank and John Craighead. They were pretty famous. They pioneered the use of GPS technology to create uh, collars for tracking wildlife. They were the first to implement that and to study grizzly bears in Yellowstone National Park. Wow. I do think it's, it's possibly genetic in my case. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I've just always loved big predators, particularly big cats. Um, I've traveled around the world and I've been really fortunate to see many species in the wild. So it sounds like that that one-on-one connection keeps you engaged in the in the work that you're doing now. Actually, being out there in the wild and experiencing that contact with these big cats. Nothing compares to the thrill of seeing a big cat in the wild. You know, they're just really elusive. They're so difficult to find, and they're always hiding in the worst places that you know you you have a hard time getting to. The first time I saw a wild tiger was in India, and I was just completely awed by its beauty and the size of him. And um, the first jaguar I saw in Brazil just literally brought me to tears when we looked each other eye to eye. Um, and so it's it's this interesting combination of like primal fear, surprise, and fascination that captures you and takes over um and it's just something that you it's just not quite the same as an experience with a captive subdued cat um and you know being able to observe an animal in its natural habitat behaving as it does is just generally very life-changing i wait for the day to see one in person in panama in the montane cloud forest it's particularly difficult to see the animals in the wild, uh, just by nature of the jungle alone, you know, it's, you just see very short distance ahead of you. And it's not quite the same as a place like Brazil, where it's very open space and, right. um, you know, they come right out in the open. However, that's, uh, the reason for our camera trap study. You know, we'll see later when we check the, the SD card from the cameras that, uh, a half hour later, a mountain lion walked by or a jaguar has walked by so they know we're there they're checking out the new sense yeah they know one thing that's been kind of in people's minds lately uh, almost unavoidable has been a new show a documentary series that has come out the tiger king where were you when you first heard about it and what were your initial reactions initially i thought it would be basically a documentary and You know, it would describe the plight of captive tigers or other wild animals um, and the implications of indiscriminate breeding or, you know, illegal wildlife trade um, and all the negative repercussions of, of those private exotic zoos and maybe discussions of the ethics of exploiting the animals for profit. You had a high, a very high bar set for this show. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wishful thinking, but uh, right. but it was really a reality TV show. Mm-hmm. It was difficult to see. And, and so, what do you think are some of the biggest pitfalls of the show in terms of doing something good for big cat conservation? You know, Joe Exotic uh, eccentricities aside, it might not strike people that there's a big problem here in terms of breeding. Um, it's, it's not necessarily true that indiscriminate captive breeding is going to save the tigers, for example. Um, you know, they're, they're perfectly capable of breeding themselves in the wild. 
as long as they actually have the room to do so, the habitat, ample prey, uh, protection from illegal poaching and hunting. Um, so people need to really understand that a place like Joe's is not required for the long-term conservation of these animals or preservation or existence of these animals. Um, and also to realize that the money that the public spends in a place like this, uh, it just doesn't go to the support of the conservation of those species in the wild. Mm. And it goes to cars and guns and explosions. And Well, in, in Joe's case, yes. And, <laughs> you know, people need to understand those things, I think, when they're looking at this TV show. Right. So if you were tasked with taking over Joe's production and turning that Tiger Center around, what would be some of the things you'd have to put into place to make this not so harmful and, in, in fact, something that could be beneficial? It's just a money-making, profit-driven breeding facility. And it needs to be the exact opposite. You know, a real sanctuary is not going to breed the animals. It's not going to sell the animals. It's not going to trade the animals. And it's not going to allow any hands-on contact with them. So is there a way for people to have an interaction with tigers, to be able to take a picture, but still have it be in a constructive and a supportive environment for the tiger and for conservation? I personally, I don't, I don't think so. I understand the desire to want to be close to something so magnificent, but uh, people don't know the implications of their actions. So a place that's just, you know, producing cubs or kittens and putting them into people's hands, um, it doesn't benefit the animals in any way. You know, the animals need space. They need the freedom to be what they are, not manhandled by people. And so for someone who looks at tiger ownerships much like they would uh, another animal, is there a way for someone to have a responsible ownership of a big cat? Let's say, you know, they live in, in a, on a huge ranch and they think, oh, I raise all kinds of animals. I could definitely give a good home to a, to a cat. You know, wh what would you say to them? It's a really touchy subject, and it has to do with um, this growing need for what's called the Big Cat Public Safety Act. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that bill is trying to ban most private cat ownership and public contact with big cats. You know, the only way it would be allowed is to enable facilities to breed that fall under the Species Survival Plan or the SSP, which is a conservation breeding program. And, you know, unless a private individual is able to get himself or herself accredited, then, you know, I'm in agreement with the Big Cat Public Safety Act. I, I would not encourage uh, private ownership. Got it. In terms of conservation, uh, you know, I think this show might encourage a lot of people to get involved and realize, you know, an, an appreciation for big cats that, that they didn't have before. At least that's a, a hope of some people. In what instances do you think someone could be 
doing conservation and in fact uh, actually be doing the opposite. Like for example, if if Joe says, oh, "I'm I'm breeding an endangered cat, I'm I'm producing more of them, therefore I'm doing conservation." You know, it falls under the guise of conservation, but it's actually not in Joe's case. You know, he's he's pulling the wool over people's eyes into believing what he's doing is conservation work, but it it is not at all. <laughs> um, and, it, and again, in fact, there's just, you know, a handful of legitimate sanctuaries that are doing conservation work in terms of, you know, giving the animals a good home to live out their lives mm-hmm. after having been saved from a, a place like Joe's. So do you think a, a place more similar to the one featured with Carol Baskin, where they, they aren't breeding? Possibly, but, uh, you know, I don't believe any of her profits go towards conservation of the animals in the wild. And for me, that's mm. a key point. You know, it's a key point to make sure conservation is for wild life, not for self-profit you know, people like to have their hands on things. And mm-hmm. when you're able to see an animal and touch an animal, it brings more attention. But um, if people truly care, then they have to really understand the story. It's not just about touching something in person for your own gratification. It's about understanding the big picture and what is needed so that mm. these animals can pursue in the wild where they come from into the future. Looking back on your experience in Panama, are there moments where you thought, okay, this is a, this is a major step forward in, in the work that we're doing? Because it sounds like there are so many steps in terms of uh, really achieving that holistic approach to conservation and, and creating the animal sanctuary. So are, are there moments that you look back and thought, wow, that was, that was a bigger step than I thought it was? Well, absolutely. We, um, you know, when we started there in 2016, people were really, you know, the local people were apprehensive about the work we were doing. They didn't like seeing cameras out in the forest. Um, so if they would encounter a camera, they were suspicious and they, they wanted to take it down. And so, you know, it, it takes time to earn the trust of the local people and gain their support. And again, that comes with engagement and communication and education. And um, like I said, they, a lot of people are working for us now and uh, actually children of some of our employees have begun to work for us now. So we have intergenerational. Yes. Uh, assistance, which is fantastic. We have, um, other, other young people in the communities that are, you know, they're, they're asking if they can help. And so these are amazing advances that, Mm -hmm. that we couldn't have imagined in the beginning. Um, you know, another really, another amazing landmark was a story that last year, uh, tapir entered into the outskirts of a village in one of the communities. There's four main communities in the area that we work. So in one of them, uh, tapir had walked 
through a river bank. Oh, wow. And it had a calf and somebody noticed it and it was captured uh, with a lasso. But once it was brought into the village, people were telling this person, you know, you, you need to let it go. Um, and there was a video made from someone's cell phone. And in the end, the man released the tapir. And the reason why he had the pressure is because of the people that we work with directly who live in that village. Um. And they really gained an appreciation for what we were doing and shared that with the others and saw a reason for releasing the animal. So that was, that was a really amazing story for us to hear that our presence actually saved this tapir's life. <laughs> yeah. And that you empowered the locals to be able to take it into their, to their own hands. Yeah. Yeah. It was really touching. And so those are the things that we want to see, you know, more and more of. Right. Wow. That's powerful. Well, Kimberly, we um, appreciate the work that you're doing and we're happy to promote it through this podcast. And we wanted to thank you again for coming on and sharing your story with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, we hope that this, this story turns for the better for the big cats. We do too. I tell you one thing, if I am in a forest or jungle and there are giant cat scratches on any tree, I'm not walking towards the scratches. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely heading in the opposite direction. Um, I'm sure that there was a, a ton of stuff in that conversation that came across as absolutely wild. Uh, what was the biggest takeaway for you when, when talking with Kimberly? She said there's nothing like encountering cats in the wild. She's like, it's it's almost a spiritual a connection and and she talks about how one time she broke down in tears just based on the beauty of encountering that animal in the wild so you know she does her best to share that enthusiasm and i think it comes across yeah that's that's really cool um obviously the elephant in the room is the tiger king and the the netflix docu series um that has just been radically popular as you kind of mentioned later on is kind of the perfect storm for its popularity in the Tiger King series, they talk about a, we're doing the work of conservation because, you know, it's an endangered species and we're helping these animals reproduce. What's the problem with that? Actually, nothing Joe Exotic is doing is, is good for the animals. You know, Kimberly talks about how they don't need help uh, reproducing if they have the proper environment to do do so in the wild. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think probably one of the coolest parts of the Kimberly Craighead interview was her talking about the locals who had, um, somebody had captured a tapir and mm -hmm. that the, the locals, because of all this education that Kaminando has done, um, kind of educated this guy and like, you, you got to let this thing go. Like this has no business being, being captured there. What, what did you make of that? Yeah, I thought that was so powerful because it's just a testament to the work that she's doing. And, and she doesn't want to be the person who's out there saying, this is what you need to do. She wants to educate others to be able to make that decision themselves and, you know, take strides in making sure that this conservation is happening and these animals are getting uh, treated in the right way. Absolutely. Nate, did you, did you watch Tiger King? I did. And I couldn't look away. It was like it was like a car crash. It is. It's it's an absolute car crash. Did you feel like there were any any at all redeeming qualities of the the Tiger King series? 
obviously it was entertaining, but I think a lot of the people working there have good hearts and I think that, you know, they're trying to do good work. It shows through, you know, their their dedication to working for basically no money and working in horrible conditions uh, just to make these lives better for the for the animals. So I think it's good to see that there are people out there who are willing to give so much to the betterment of these tigers and, you know, big cats' lives, but yeah, overall, it's it's not good. It's I think some people might watch it and think I could do I could do better than Joe Exotic. I could raise a a tiger on my ranch, and you know I'm not going to have 200, but I could probably give one a good home. So that's why I wanted them to to touch on that. Kimberly says that it's well, it's a reality TV show is really what it was. It really wasn't anything about big cat conservation, um, you know, or, or in terms of like talking about the plight of a lot of these exotic animals. Well, let's let's jump into this interview with Amy Gottliff and let's see where it takes us. Amy, first, if you could start off by saying uh, what kind of work you're doing right now. I am the vice president of conservation at Oakland Zoo. I work within the platform of a lovely zoo to conserve wildlife. Do you remember one of your first times when you felt like you really had a connection with nature or with animals? You know, I grew up with a dog who slept in the crib with me. And I think understanding when I know the various personalities my dog or my cat has or some of the more dynamic animals at the zoo with all their very different personalities. You know, every animal has a name. They all have something special about them. To think every animal in the wild, every bird and every bear that lives in this world they're not just a bird or the bear like they all have individual personalities as well talk about your experience with big cats in captivity and how that might be different from you know, someone interacting with cats in the wild one of the reasons why I took this job at Oakland Zoo, I was not a zoo person whatsoever, is they were really well known for incredible animal care and that they gave each animal, each individual animal, they did whatever was best for that animal. And then I came to realize that so many of our animals came from a rescue situation. And a, a poignant example is we currently have four sister tigers and they were all somebody's pet who eventually got sick of that and turned them into the zoo in Texas and we eventually were able to get them and give them a forever home and we've had a number of cats other tigers lions um, in our care that came from a fairly abusive background cats that have been in enclosed crates or boxes or small cages for a number of their lives, even when they have a huge space, they'll pace back and forth the length of what they were used to for so many years. It's one oh, of the wow. worst things to see. It's kind of imprinted on their in their brains almost. Totally imprinted in their muscle memory. However, our zookeepers dedicate their very lives to breaking that and freeing them of that um, of that habit. And that's one of the greatest joys to see is an animal understanding that they now have space and they're safe in a bigger space. You mentioned you weren't a quote zoo person. Well, what would a zoo person look like? How, how would they interact? When I grew up in the 70s and 60s, zoos just weren't the same. You know, they 
the enclosures were smaller. There were shows, there were performances, there was public feedings of inappropriate animals. And even as a kid growing up in Detroit, um, witnessing that, my siblings and I all felt like this wasn't right. And we stopped going to zoos as a family. Um, And so I just had that in my mind, um, along with many people who just feel like no disease, no disease, no disease, until I went to my first interview at Oakland Zoo, and that was 20 years ago, and really learned that things have changed so drastically. So I think we can jump on one of the biggest sensations in (laughs) in big cat news lately is the Tiger King, the documentary series. Uh, Have you seen it? And what were your initial impressions? (laughs) I made myself watch it because I figured it was my job to watch it. I guess what struck me the most is the popularity and the um, iconism that popped up so quickly. And I have my theories around it. (laughs) Let's hear them. Okay. Well, one theory is that it drops right as this coronavirus also dropped. So right when everyone was stuck at home with very weird and dark and scary feelings within themselves. So in the middle of all that comes this semi-addictive show. Right. It was a perfect storm for something like this to happen. It was the perfect storm. They got very lucky. (laughs) So if you were tasked to, you know, if you were put on an emergency board to take over this, his uh, tiger ranch, what what would be some of the changes you'd put in place immediately? Um, first we're, um, it would become a sanctuary. So that would mean, um, we're not breeding anymore and we're offering the best life possible for the animals that are there. So it would be regulation amount of space, um, enrichment and appropriate food, no performing, um, no public touching or cuddling or holding. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't put on a sequin jacket. You wouldn't be singing. I might put on a sequin jacket and sing, (laughs) probably for sure, but I wouldn't do it next to the tiger. Got it. Um, Like our tigers at the zoo, we try to really give them as much of a wildlife as possible. So we don't go in with them. Um, We give them their dignity to not be under our jurisdiction. They're they're their own and their own beings making their own choices as much as possible. What are the ways where people can interact with the animals in a way that's uh, on point with the goals of the zoo? In general, I love that people love animals. It's really just a matter of taking that innate desire to be close to animal kind on this planet and putting it to somewhere that really shows respect and helps that animal. So Mm. there's lots of ways to do that in a respectful way. We do have a contact yard. So we... We honor the primate in all of us that just wants to touch or brush. And you can come touch and brush goats and sheep. We have um, presentations of smaller animals like birds and turtles for students. And we let kids touch them. They do a very respectful two-finger touch that they have to practice first and do very slowly from head down to tail on the back. So we do have that kind of interaction that's very facilitated and very watched over. Um, We have animal trainings. So we show the public how we train the animals that's for the benefit of their own 
um, medical care and people do get to watch that and it's very special. So they get to see that keepers do have relationships with animals and that's a wonderful thing to see. So there are ways to have interactions. You know, if I feel like you really want an interaction with an animal, please volunteer at a wildlife care facility volunteer at an SPCA or Humane Society. There are some fantastic ways simply within, you know, our own neighborhoods that we can really have positive interactions with animals that are good for all. Great. Well said. Kind of looking at zoos from a a macro sense, what is the purpose of a zoo in terms of having an effect on people? In the best scenario, um, a zoo's mission should be about inspiring connection and stewardship to the natural world. So if you are coming through the Oakland Zoo, you will get to see that animal, experience that animal. Then you'll probably run into someone in my team who's going to say, if you really love that lemur, um, consider your hardwood choices because that's really going to affect the well-being of a wild lemur. If you really love that sun bear or that gibbon or that orangutan, please really understand the palm oil crisis and here's what you can do. Here's mm-hmm. how you can help. What I would ask people to do if they love tigers or any animals is just to try to make ethical choices in everything you do with animals. So besides that animal in the zoo that you see, when you travel, there's lots of ways people can sort of sucker you into doing the wrong thing. Um, you never want to get your picture taken, whether that's with a with a tiger or with a parrot on the beach um, or a llama going down the street or an Asian elephant. Um, always say no to that. But if there's an animal that you love, there's just a species that you feel like this one really speaks to me, find a small organization that's doing work in the wild and really try to help them. Create a relationship and let them know your skills and try to really dig in and be part of their team. Let's talk about big cat ownership, uh, exotic animal ownership for that matter. Is there any scenario where this could be a... A positive thing or if you know i imagine so many people watch the tiger king and they think well you know he has hundreds of tigers he's not treating them right but i have a lot of land i could handle one tiger i could give one tiger a good home what would you say to that person i would say that um they can go get a little tiger at the humane society <laughs> um it's it's just not the right thing you know we have thousands of pet or captive tigers in the United States and probably at least half or less than half of that amount of tigers in the wild right now. You know, true love of an animal isn't about owning it um, as exciting as it sounds. You know, there are tigers that need rescue um, for various reasons, but there are giant, wonderful sanctuaries for those animals, true sanctuaries. Um, one that is right here in California called PAWS, the Performing Animal Welfare Society. And I remember when they had to retrieve many, 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 many tigers um, that needed a rescue. And they give them wonderful lives with huge enclosures. Um, So that is the best case scenario for a captive tiger, a space like ours at Oakland Zoo um, with staff to keep them enriched and professional zoological training to make sure they're getting what they need. That would be the case for paws or other huge sanctuaries. So that is what that tiger really deserves as much as 
a person thinks that their own love for that tiger is enough. Looking towards the future, do you see a scenario where there wouldn't be any rescue tigers? That the work you're doing and others are doing has reached a point where it's so successful that zoos aren't aren't receiving those animals anymore? And, and what would that look like for zoos? That would be... You know, that would be the ultimate goal that, um, you know, if there was an ultimate goal that all captive animals, um, you know, inappropriate captive animal holding was um, completely outlawed and adhered to, and every animal in the wild was conserved appropriately, um, maybe zoos wouldn't have a role any longer. Um, But until that changes, we still feel like we have a job to do. What are some other issues you see coming up for zoos in the future? I think there's really um, nothing but exciting things for zoos in the future. It's, you know, we see under just under a million people a year. We're getting better and better at kind of seeing ourselves as a place to create a conservation community. Um, You know, right now we're working on, we worked on an anti-plastics campaign really getting everyone who came on board to um, adjust their plastic consumption. When we reopen, we're aiming for a bees and trees campaign where we're hoping people will start planting trees and planting pollinator plants for bees and butterflies. So I'd say an ultimate vision is really to be that touchstone, that base camp for communities to figure out how they can participate in a sustainable world and one in which we, um, you know, co-live and co-evolve with with the plants and animals that we share a world with. So it sounds like you're trying to create almost like an inspiration center or an activation point where people come and they have a connection and then they are encouraged to go out into the world and and continue doing or serving the mission of the zoo and and conservation in general. Exactly. That is definitely how we like to see ourselves. Let's pretend it was a, a huge, beautiful place and there weren't any animals in it. We would still want to... Um, teach people about tigers and activate an action around those tigers. We would still want to do the same thing for black bears and mountain lions and your neighborhood raccoon. We would still want to teach people how we can live in a world where we're all coexisting and kind of celebrating how fortunate we are to live on the earth. Wow, that is amazing. (laughs) Sounds like you are taking, and the zoo is taking a, a holistic approach and and trying to make this a global effort, and that's great. You know, research shows that people really want to do the right thing. If they're told what's the right thing and what's the helpful thing, they're actually um, on board, and that's exciting to see. Amy, it was great hearing from you, and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you guys for your whole alliance and the work you do as well. I loved that Amy made such a specific, um, very noticeable intent to comment on the idea of stewardship and of true sanctuary. You know, that if you want if you want to see these species, if you want to have contact with them, go volunteer at a sanctuary. And if you're in a situation like the Oakland Zoo, 
and you want to educate people on conservation and that stewardship, and you're looking at orangutans and, you know, oh, that's a great animal, that's fantastic, you can't not have that conversation about the destructive uh, deforestation around palm oil. I, I really really loved that part of, of her interview. Definitely. And and she speaks to how you know, zoos can be a lot more than how they were back in the 70s when she was growing up, you know, just as a place to see the animal. Now they're more like activation centers where people can go and, and get the information that can help them make better decisions outside of the zoo, like she says. And that's a great way for zoos to change and continue changing and, and have a bigger impact on people and uh, out in conservation in the wild. Absolutely. And I think if there's one moral that people take away from this, it's that if if you are taking pictures with an exotic animal, there's a really good chance you're doing more harm than good. Yep, exactly. As tempting as it might be. As tempting as it might be. And boy, is it tempting. I mean, I get it. I get it. Awesome. Hey, real fast before we uh, get out of here, I just want to go ahead and remind people that uh, the work that we do for the Eyes on Conservation podcast is possible because of generous donations and because of uh, our generous Patreon community. Um, Real fast, I just want to go ahead and list off those people. I know some people don't like hearing those lists, but it's it's a way for us to say thank you very directly to the people who've helped us out. Uh, Alexia, Arturo, Benjamin, Brant, Candice, two Candices, Chaz, Devin, Diane, Elicio, Graham, Gregory, Jim, Juliana, Justin, Kristen, Laura, Matthew, Rob, Ronnie, Sarah, Sean, Todd, and Vicky. Um, you guys make a huge difference. You make uh, having us uh, have opportunities like Nate here to come and produce these shows possible. And for the members of our Patreon community, an extended cut of this interview is available on Patreon exclusively to the Patreon uh, community. That's and, and if you want to become a Patreon member, uh, that is Wildlands Collective. So www.patreon.com slash Collective. And for just a, as little as a buck and uh, a creation, you help us make this show possible. Thank you very, very much. Uh, one more time, Nate, thank you very much for doing this today. Any, uh, any uh, final words before we sign off? Uh, if you watch the Tiger King and you want to make a difference, Google the Big Cat Safety Act and and try to get involved with that. Good Lord, absolutely. If there was one thing I really, truly learned from watching the Tiger King, it was that this is the most unregulated catastrophe I've I've ever seen. If there was a need for regulation at any point, this would be it. Yep, exactly. Cool. Hey, Nate, thank you so much, man. We'll see you next time on Eyes on Conservation. See you then. <laughs>